Hello, and welcome back to the Full Casting Crew Podcast. This is your host, Jason Silo. And I will give you a break from the multiple Jackie Brown-themed episodes I've been doing recently. But as it's a podcast about rabbit holes, you know you'll have to indulge me for doing Jackie Brown, then doing the Ray Nicolette Cinematic Universe, and then doing hundred across 110th Street. But let's step away from the neo-noir crime thrillers and take a pivot over to one of my favorite filmmakers, Albert Brooks, and his brilliantly hilarious satire of Reagan-era yuppie Moore's Lost in America. Now, dedicated listeners of the pod and dedicated followers of the pod's Instagram account, more to the point, will remember that I put up a quiz some weeks ago asking you all, which of the two Albert Brooks films I was considering doing would you like me to do? Would you like me to do Lost in America or would you like me to do Modern Romance? Overwhelmingly, you voted for Lost in America. I think it was 81, 82% of you. As I mentioned, that made me want to pivot and do the thing you didn't want me to do, but I thought better of it. And I've watched both films. And you know what? I've had a bit of a change in what I think I thought as well. I should have changed the name of this podcast to Things I Think I Thought. I generally considered myself to be more of a modern romance fan than a Lost in America fan, although I appreciate and love the sensibility of Albert Brooks wherever I can get it. But as I rewatched both, it's clear that Lost in America is the better film. It's the more complete film. Modern Romance is in its first third or half, I want to say, a little bit funnier in terms of its brilliant use of the humiliation that Albert Brooks is willing to put his character and then thus himself through on camera as, a, as, a, as an actor and as a director. But one of the f- things, and I love this part of the movie because it's very inside Hollywood. There's a whole chunk where, <laughs> you know, the filmmaker James L. Brooks shows up in Modern Romance because the lead character played by Albert Brooks is, in, is a film editor and Brooks is the director whose science fiction film starring George Kennedy uh, that the Albert Brooks character is editing along with the great Bruno Kirby, who's as ever the most caring, capable, sparky sidekick you could have in a film. I mean, brilliant. Was anyone ever better at that than Bruno Kirby? I don't think so. But then once James Brooks shows up in the movie, there's this long chunk all about kind of the film and the, the Foley work that they do <laughs> Get me Hulk running. I love all that stuff. It's hilarious. But in a movie about, ostensibly, modern romance, it's a bit of a detour that I think uh, could have been Albert Brooks's most hilarious, brilliant takedown of Hollywood had he done a film that was entirely sort of a satire about making movies, which is kind of funny that he never really did that. That section is genius. The guys playing the crusty sound engineers are genius. I love all the comedy related to the filmmaking stuff, but the movie is about the central romantic problems. And as such, that feels a bit like a detour until we get back into the relationship stuff at the very end of the film. It's very, very funny. 
I think it has maybe more LOL lines as a film than Lost in America does. Lost in America has, to me, the better narrative, the better screenplay, and uh, a more, I'll say it, a more interesting, a more compelling female lead opposite Albert Brooks. Uh, so anyway, that's how we arrived here. So I watched both. I got the Criterion of Lost in America, which has some good materials, but doesn't have what you really want. It doesn't have a commentary track from Albert Brooks, but it has a pretty good interview with him and Robert Wide about his career and the making of the film. Briefly, just a quick little detour into the career of Albert Brooks, because one of the joys of revisiting any Albert Brooks film is just remembering what a treasure he is, what a treasure his whole family has been, going back to his father, who was a radio star. Um, he invented a character, uh, a, a Greek character named Nick Parkiacarcus, later abbreviated just to Parkiacarcus. And he did this character on a radio show and on some film and television appearances in the early days. He is one of the people who has the distinction of literally dying on stage. And this is kind of a little, <laughs> go figure, this is a little obsession of mine. Uh, I like to collect and investigate stories of performers who literally died on stage because to me, there's something so essential and fundamental to the contradictions inherent in showbiz personalities, in these stories of people who have acts and who killed and were killed on stage. Now, these weren't murders, of course, but did showbiz kill these people in its own way? Yes, it did. So Albert Brooks's father in, I want to say, it was pretty early. I think he was maybe 11 or 12 years old when it happened himself. He was performing at the Friars Club, and it was a roast of Lucille Ball. And he did his act and killed, as he, as he usually did. He was quite well known at the later part of his life for his, his appearances at these Friars Club roasts. And there's a recording, I'm not going to play it here, but there's a recording of his entire act. And you can hear, he's killing. People are laughing hysterically. He got back to his seat on the dais and uh, someone made a joke. Can't remember who it was. It was somebody big. It was like Jack Benny or George Burns or someone like that said, you know, every time I see his act, I wonder why isn't he a bigger star? And Parkia Carcass replied something like, that's what I think too. Then he slumped down in his chair and uh, someone called out, is there a doctor in the house, which people assumed was uh, <laughs> was a joke and it got a big laugh and uh, only then did people realize it was Milton Berle uh, who was seated next to him and said, um, is there a doctor in the house? Reading from Wikipedia, this was initially thought to be a humorous ad lib, but the gravity of the situation quickly became clear. So anyway, he was brought backstage and um, attempted to re revive and resuscitate him, um, but it was to no avail. So it's, it's a tragic way to go out. He was only 54 years old. He was incredibly young. 
And he left behind four children, all of whom are incredibly accomplished. They include, in addition to Albert Brooks and the late, great uh, Bob Einstein, perhaps best known as either Super Dave Osborne, if you grew up watching TV in the 70s and the 80s, or as Marty Funkhauser from Curb Your Enthusiasm, if you grew up watching in the 90s or the 2000s. But he also had two other incredibly talented children, um, including Charles Einstein, who was a newspaper man and a sports writer, um, and Cliff, who is who also appears actually in Modern Romance. So, as I said, I like these stories, um, tragic though they may be. I've long been a huge fan of a book about the British magician comedian Tommy Cooper, who also died on stage, and there's a video of him suffering the heart attack on stage that you can find on YouTube if you're morbidly curious. Half of me wants to consider doing a special episode about performers who died on stage, not because I find it pruriently interesting, but because I do think there's something so essential to a show business life when it ends thusly. Um, and I think in covering some of those stories, I've, I've always found something really truthful and fascinating and moving about a show business life when this is a part of the story. Tommy Cooper's life is, is very much an example. Parkia Carcass's story is very much an example. And that's part of the lineage that Albert Brooks comes from. Now, Brooks, uh, when he started his career, he was a, a noted stand-up um, always kind of in the interesting Dada sort of meta comedic universe popularized at the time by people like Steve Martin. And he did some writing for the National Lampoon, which included a, a comedy test, which appeared in the magazine for something supposedly called the School for Famous Comedians. And it did so well that Brooks says they got 2,300 tests sent back to the National Lampoon when it appeared in the magazine. And then there was a show called The Great American Dream Machine, which offered him the chance to make a short film of the comedy test, which he did. There's a little of that. Famous school for comedians. Mr. Brooks, I'll see if he's in. That's Penny Marshall, by the way. And then there's this kind of eight minute video. Hello, I'm Albert Brooks, and I'm speaking to you on behalf of the famous school for comedians, located on 22 gorgeous acres near Arlington National Park. How many times have you gotten nice laughs at a party had a friend turn to you and say, you know something? That was pretty funny. You should think about being a comedian. Well, your friend was right. Yes, the comedy fraternity of show business is a fast-paced, nutty, funny world. There are always openings for good comedy talent. But you say, I just don't know if I have what it takes to become a professional, Albert. So I say, why not find out? And then it goes into this long thing about 
the test that they've developed and he tours the campus. It's a very funny short. You can find it on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the uh, show notes. Albert Brooks then was offered the chance to become the permanent host of Saturday Night Live. But at the time, he didn't want to do it. So he proposed, why don't I just make some short films for you from L.A., and that will be my contribution. And so he did that. And his first film was Real Life, uh, which is a send-up of The Loud Family, which was an iconic, groundbreaking documentary made for public television, which if you haven't seen is worth very much checking out. Um, and it's a satire of that. And when he, when he wrote that film with his then writing partner, Monica Johnson, who also wrote both Lost in America and Modern Romance with Albert Brooks, he was originally thinking that someone else would direct it. And he approached Carl Reiner, who had become, as he says, a second father to him uh, in his comedy career and in his life. And Reiner really encouraged him to direct it himself. And I thought it was interesting what Jim Brooks himself, who appears briefly in both Lost in America and Modern Romance, uh, had to say about... The idea of directing yourself directing in a yourself leading as an role actor. always seems impossible to me. It is two places at once. It's Albert-esque, like Chaplin-esque, or, you know, Woody. It's, it, 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 is, it is like that. How do you set the camera and think of the shot and having written the script and having to worry about the other actor and having to go through all the things you go through and then step in front of the camera and be free? And he's free. I, I mean, I mean, wild freedom in this. Well, I can't quit now. Yes, you can. No, I can't. I did. I know, but even if I wanted to, my boss isn't here. There's no one I can quit to. Well, it's time to get out. We have to touch Indians. We have to see the mountains and the prairies and the whole rest of that song. So often in this movie, You've got to go to a place that's not quite comfortable for the joke to work, for the thing to work, for the point to happen. And he does. And to do that with people watching you and to care as much as Albert does, all these can be hurdles, and he just, he just flies over them. And you see the humanity behind it, the heart behind it. And, and um, uh, can I say a profane word? And always so fucking smart. <laughs> the idea... That's pretty good. <laughs> I like Jim Brooks gets to all this point in the, in the anecdote. And then he's like, ah, it's just so fucking smart. And that's really what it is. These films are so of a piece of the Albert Brooks and Monica Johnson comedy worldview. These are movies and lost in America is a movie that's funny in every scene, including transitional wordless scenes. The setups are funny. The master shots are often funny. The score working hand in hand with the motorhome as it moves through the expansive scenery of the American West. The extras on the Hoover Dam looking on in the background as the couple fights. It's funny in the way that it comes from his mind and the mind of Monica Johnson. And it's rare. I can't think of another example so specifically from a satirical mind of the quality of Albert Brooks 
in American filmmaking. I mean, people and Jim Brooks just made the comparison between a Chaplin or a Woody Allen who frequently stars in his own films, but it's different to me because satire, although Woody has done satiric films, but to consistently kind of hit the nail on the head the way Albert Brooks did over so many of his films is remarkable. And it's a remarkable distillation and transference of this comedic worldview that he has into movies, into the big screen. And in doing so, he's covered a bunch of different territories in Lost in America. As I said, we're, we're dealing with the Reagan era kind of yuppie ennui and the idea that everything will be fine if I just get this promotion or this car um, to the mores of dating in the 80s in modern romance uh, to, to really... I think underappreciated films like, um, oh my God, what's the name of the one where he's dead? Um, wow. You know, it's so funny is you spend so much time researching these things and you, what's it called? It's not called You Bet Your Life. Defending Your Life. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my God. It's just so funny. Um, yes. Anyway, Defending Your Life. I think that's, it's, I, I always enjoy that movie when I watch it. Um, so anyway, you know, I just think we're lucky to have had Albert Brooks have the opportunity to make these films. Now, Lost in America starts with this brilliantly confident three-minute-plus opening shot with the camera just wandering amongst the home of our main characters here. And it's... Uh, he's listening to a faked version of the Larry King radio show with Rex Reed, which Larry and Rex Reed did for the purpose of the film. And we we're learning as we track through the house uh, all about the fact that they are packed up and getting ready to move. We don't know why yet. Always needs an audience. And Larry and Rex are talking about comic filmmaking and, I'll laugh. How Rex likes to watch comedies. To laugh to remind me that I should be laughing. I mean, I, I don't respond very well to mass hysteria anyway. With Rex Reed, we're ready to go to your phone calls. We start with Cincinnati. Hello. Hi, good morning, Larry. Rex, I, I wanted to tell you that I think your forthrightness and uh, is refreshing, and I think your dry wit and your humor, it cracks me up. Uh, I like your opinions. You usually agree with me. Oh, thank you. It gets me into a lot of trouble sometimes, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, but do you care? Well, I used to. Now, this has not been covered anywhere. I'm going to just guess that I think that is the voice of Monica Johnson, Brooks's co-writer on five of his feature films, and a legend among comedy circles. I'm going to spend some time talking a little bit about her, and I may in the future, end up devoting a whole episode to Monica Johnson because I find her fascinating and exactly the type of showbiz persona that I really like to uh, celebrate here on the podcast. But I haven't heard it said anywhere, but I think this is her. I think this is her voice. Do a lot. Really? I, uh, I, I go back to, like, uh, today I can go and see, I'll let myself see a P or a PG because I don't like to be uncomfortable or be embarrassed. Like, I saw The Black Stallion twice, so you know where I'm coming from. What's the question? 
All right, sex to me is not a spectator sport. Are we going to see some good, thoughtful, clean movies again, ever? Well, <laughs> so this is this is how this film starts, and again, it's like three and a half minutes of this shot that tracks all through the home, only to arrive at uh, our two main characters in bed, and then sort of the the familiar introduction of the Brooksian neuro- neurotic character who is obsessively thinking about where his life is, has gone wrong or is about to go wrong as a result of decisions made or not made. It's just time to ask these questions. We sold our house. We should have asked these questions before. All right, well then I can't talk to you, so good night. Stop it, you're just nervous about tomorrow. You'll get the promotion, we'll move into the new house and we'll be happy, okay? You should hear your voice. It just fills this room with excitement. I'm tired. Now stop questioning. I made a wise decision. Now let's feel good about it, all right? All right, okay. Good night. Good night. Why that house? <laughs> Just the comic timing is so good. Albert Brooks's comic timing is mastery. His his acting, his delivery of lines, it's incredible. It's so effortlessly seeming. When you listen to James L. Brooks, or you listen to him talk, or other actors pointedly talk about his process, particularly Gary Marshall. We'll talk about that when we get to that iconic Gary Marshall cameo in Lost in America as a casino manager. You know, they all talk about this perfectionism on the set and take after take after take after take. So it's all the more remarkable that these films feel as effortless and breezy as they do. Comedy is so difficult is the old adage. And I'm sure that's true. But the confidence here to start in the manner that this film starts is reminiscent, frankly, of the confidence that Quentin Tarantino showed in Jackie Brown in starting his Los Angeles set film with such a New York identified song, as I talked about in the last three episodes of the podcast. And here you have the idea, as expressed uh, by the by the film, that everything's going to be better with more or different things, more money, uh, a promotion, more responsibility, a different house, a different car, a tennis court. And one of the great uses of score in this film is from the composer, Arthur R. Rubinstein, who is... I gather not the noted famous pianist of its of the time, but a film composer of note who does a great job in Lost in America contributing this jaunty score in places. That Just that little bit right there, this is over the great shots of Aaron Albert Brooks driving to the, his ad, advertising agency in Los Angeles in his Saab, which is the most perfectly chosen vehicle, by the way. This perfectly indicates where he is on the ladder. He doesn't have a BMW. He doesn't have a Mercedes. He has the Saab, which is better than, you know, having an equivalent American car in this time of the early 80s. You know, there's this era where Saabs were the most cool car that you could have. I just saw on Instagram, of course, someone has like a completely perfectly restored like 1987 Saab 
and everyone's ooing and aahing over it because it has all this nostalgic appeal. But Rubenstein's score right there is so great as he drives to work because the score is sort of indicative of what his mood is. This hopeful, a little glockenspiel. It's gonna be a great day, we're gonna get that promotion. But listen at this very very end of the cue. You hear that? (laughs) Just before it picks up again as he gets in the elevator, there's this ominous underscore, just a little bit. I love it. And his journey through his office, this this is a great use of location in Lost in America, too. This Steadicam shot that's every bit as revelatory as the famous Scorsese shot behind the scenes at the nightclub because it shows us the kind of stale, uh, uncreative corporateness of this office warren where everything is white and red there is it's completely devoid of creativity in the sense that you would think a advertising agency would contain but this great shot that follows him to his office listen no calls at all i really want to be alone all right oh all right give me the mercedes place and that's his secretary. This is another uh, great little juxtaposition here is then the uh, the film switches over to his uh, his his wife's venture through her to her office and she works at iMagnon department stores as a uh, personnel director. And her journey to her office is through a a as yet unopened department store. It's a reminder of these kinds of fabricated spaces which exist only for commerce, right? They they have some or great thought put into the ersatz hominess and warmth that's missing from Aaron's office, which is supposed to be the font of creativity in advertising. But in her journey to her office, she picks up a teddy bear that's fallen off a purposefully kind of fallen over display. And her office is very pointedly, looks like a police interrogation room. It's got one of those two-way mirrors kind of looking out where she could look out into the store, but people can't see into hers, I guess. It's just a great choice. Two great little choices of locations, which I think underscore and support the comedy in a way that's really artistic. And you know, I think Brooks doesn't get the same type of artistic credit that a Woody Allen got at a similar part in their filmmaking careers. But he should, he should probably get more because I think he's a real filmmaker of vision. And you can see that there. Now, you know, listening to the pod, one of my very favorite things in films is the one-sided phone call. Now, what I haven't been able to do in a film, but I'm thrilled to be able to do here, is to offer you a one-sided phone call where the actor is playing opposite himself because it's Brooks himself doing the Germanic voice of Hans, the Mercedes dealer, on the other side of this iconic phone call, which indicates again how Aaron is going to be he sees the Mercedes as this talisman of success, which he has 
He's so desirous of, he's making all the plans, just like he, just like they did buying a house that costs $450,000 before he gets the promotion that he assumes he's getting. All the presumptuous, the presumptuousness of the character is so great. Here's the call. Thank you, dear. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, this is Hans. Hans. Yeah. David Howard. How are you, David? Okay, listen. Yeah. Uh, I'm closing in on a decision. Good. I think the beige is the best interior. Good interior there. Uh -huh. And uh, I think with the dark brown, that's... That's the best combination. That's the most beautiful combination on the lot. All right, so tell me again, uh -huh. everything, everything, tax, license, out the door, in my garage. Right, well, I don't know where your garage is, but it's $44,420. Wow. All right. It's a lot of money for a car, isn't it? It's not a car, Mr. Howard, it's a Mercedes, and that's the difference. No, I know okay. it's a Mercedes, but it's just still a lot of money. Well, maybe you shouldn't buy the car then, get a Nova. Okay. Okay. Now, there's no extras, right? That's it? That's everything? I don't imagine at that price I'd have to add. No, just leather. That's all you'd have to add. Nothing else. Really? Yeah. It doesn't come with leather. No, sir, it does not. That's why I told you you'd have to add it. Well, what's in there? Well, it's what they call Mercedes leather. What would that be? Well, it's a very thick vinyl. Beautiful seat. I would prefer that. So let's call it that, then. Fine. Beautiful thick vinyl seat. But I have it. Gee, isn't that something? Wouldn't you think there'd be leather in there? I tell you what. If you buy the car, put some shoes in it, okay? Okay. All right. So. Well. Uh-huh. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I will see you when? Tomorrow night? Well, I don't know. I'm going to think about it, talk about it with my wife. It's a pretty big decision. Let's set a day now. How about Friday morning? I, I don't think I can commit to any day right now. Certainly well, not this lose week. The car, you know. I have uh, stars coming in here looking at the car. Let me just call you back. <laughs> What's so good here in this call is just the the genius of the other side of the call, which, again, is being played by the actor on the other other side of the call. Thank you, dear. Okay, thank you listen, very much. Listen, listen yeah, to Hans. Hans's Hans. dialogue. David Howard. How are you, David? Okay, listen. Yeah. Uh, I'm closing in on a decision. Good. I think the beige is the best interior. Good interior now. Uh -huh. And <laughs> just that little delivery. Mm, good interior now, huh? Like the master salesman is just working this sap by agreeing with everything he says. Uh, I think with the dark brown, that's that's the best combination. That's the most beautiful combination on the lot. All right. That's the most beautiful combination on the lot. <laughs> and also the thing that's so genius about the Hans dialogue is, listen to how ready he is to be done with the phone call. All these little tells throughout the call where he's like, okay, all right. He's trying to hurry this along. He's just so tired of this dude's process. So tell me again... Uh -huh. Everything, everything, tax, license, out the door, in my garage. Right, well, I don't know where your garage is, but it's $44,420. Wow. All right. It's a lot of money for a car, isn't it? You know, just when he says, all right, like he's so ready to be finished. Not a car, Mr. Howard, it's a Mercedes, and that's the difference. No, I know okay. it's a Mercedes, but it's just still a lot of money. Well, maybe you shouldn't buy the car then. Get a Nova. Okay. Okay. Now, there's no extra. Okay. This is so genius to me. I mean, I guess admittedly it could be considered a little strange to play a scene opposite yourself, but I mean, I'm just fascinated by the concept of comedic timing with yourself. <laughs> like, how did they record this? Was someone on the other end of the call uh, doing the Hans part or did he do the Hans part after? I have no idea. I'm fascinated by this. Robert Wide on the Criterion asks him, 
is that you doing the Hans voice? And Elberberg says, you know, no one has ever asked me that until this point. And he admits it is him, but they don't go into the detail, which of course, of course, I'm probably the only person that wants this degree of detail. But they don't go into detail about how they technically filmed this phone call, and I'm obsessed with this one-sided phone call. I'm, I'm, I'm planting the flag now. I don't know if I'm going to do my episode about people who died on stage, but I'm committing to you. I will do greatest one-sided phone call scenes, best of episode. It's coming. I promise. Now, in the scene where Aaron goes in for his presumed promotion in a little bit of further tie-in to the full cast and crew cinematic universe, he's playing opposite an actor who played opposite William Peterson in To Live and Die in L.A., the actor Michael Green. And this is such a fascinating scene, uh, again, so intricately written and performed and operatically by Albert Brooks going through so many degrees of the process of grief and accepting bad news as he realizes he's not getting the promotion. He has presumptuously made the groundwork of a home. He's made a home purchase and he's laying the groundwork for a Mercedes purchase to befit his status as he now sees it. And this is the type of scene that Brooks writes for himself that requires such good counterplay from the other actors in the scene with him. But he is such an incredible performer that directing himself, he gets these, hey, these great hey. moments. This is Michael Say Green. Say hi to Brad Tooley. Brad, David Howard. David. Brad just joined the agency in the East. One of the top men at Doyle Dane. He's fantastic. We're lucky to get him. I got two of the best men in modern advertising right here. Right? Yeah. Brad was blown away by your stuff. Right, Brad? Very impressive. The Knudsen campaign was one of the best I've ever seen. Ever. Thank you. Brad has joined the agency for a very special reason. We're going to get Ford. No. I can't believe it. Ford? Trucks, too. Jesus. <laughs> so this makes us like the biggest agency Trucks, too, is such a great little... Top of the heap. Either Albert Brooks, I wonder if it's an Albert Brooks or a Monica Johnson line. We're going to talk about that later. There's certain lines that have a Monica Johnson flourish to them. And there's one in Modern Romance that reminds me of this. Trucks, too, is just so funny. What a week for all of us. This is great. <laughs> now, David, don't say it. As senior vice president, I'm here 24 hours a day. Don't even worry. I'm yours. I'll live on this floor. You're much too valuable to be senior vice president, but I do want you to move to New York and work under Brad. You two are going to be in charge of Ford. You're going to have to hurry, though. You start in two weeks. God, I, I'm... <laughs> Look on Brooks's face. This is the crushing of his entire character's dream. And he's just hanging. <laughs> he's hanging there looking at Michael Green. You, This can't be happening. It's, it's so brilliant. I'm sorry, I didn't hear... You start in two weeks. Wait, no, no, but there was much too much information. I'm senior vice president, and then I just got no, lost. No, no, I've hired Phil Shibano as senior vice president. Oh, no, 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 you couldn't. I, 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 I don't understand. I'm, I'm senior vice president. No, Phil Shibano. So here we're in denial. And then what am I? Hey. He's giving you quite a compliment. I asked him for the best man he had, and he didn't hesitate for a moment. I, he didn't. I don't want to go to New York. <laughs> he, he didn't. 
I should get the position I deserve instead of just being shifted to another account. I, another I, account? This is not just another account. Well, I understand. It's Ford. I, I know it's Ford. I'm, I'm, you have to keep your promise to me. What's great about this scene is, you know, it's not that you don't understand Aaron's dilemma here, right? Like, it's what James Brooks was talking about before. He allows you to see the heart in this otherwise ridiculous person who is going to be brought down a few pegs. And I think it's a tremendous skill as a performer to embody the warmth in the heart that Albert Brooks is able to embody so that even when the character is doing terrible things, whether he's gaslighting the hell out of his girlfriend in modern romance or here, like not acting, as we say, as a worker among workers, it's all about him. He's not in service to his job, which requires him to do this thing he doesn't want to do. But as we see in the movie, it's not that he's above doing that or doesn't understand ultimately the value of moving to New York to work on the Ford campaign. It's just that he presumed all of these other steps as the ones that were going to happen. And so when he's presented with this different situation, um, he can't process it. And yet it's so great how, um, how he manifests that on, on screen. I didn't make you any promises. Oh, yes, you did. No, no. We had lunches over and over many years in a row, and, and, and you were grooming me for senior vice president. I was here longer than Phil Shibano. I've been with the company eight years now. Phil has been here nothing. He's been here less than two. Quite frankly, he's not as clever as you. He's more of an executive type. I need you creatively. Oh. Well, I, well, that explains it then. So by being extra clever and by being here longer, I get shifted to just another account. And he, because of his low intelligence and short time with the company, gets this job I've been waiting my whole life for. That's like the most definitive Albert Brooks dialogue you could possibly cite. Because it contains the self-delusion of the character, the arrogance and the entitledness, but it also contains the intelligence and the wit and the heart so that it's not any one of those things. It's all of it. And it, it's real. It feels real. And it makes us laugh. And who are we laughing at? We're laughing at him. And that's the genius of the ability of the performer. You keep referring to this as just another account. It's not. It's Ford. Is somebody bursting in here and saying, surprise, you did this to me before. I hate you for this. God damn it, Paul. You caught me again. Who is bursting in here? Who is doing it? Nobody's bursting in here. And I'm offering you something very big. I'm going to New York? Paul, maybe you should tell him about the campaign. That'll help. So <laughs> this is, these scenes like this are, are why you enjoy Albert Brooks' Uh, movies if you enjoy them. And another little great thing about the Albert Brooks performance here is <laughs> after he leaves this firing, he gets fired, and the only amount of time it takes him is the amount of time it takes him to drive from his, his job in Los Angeles to his wife's job at iMagnon and in that time, he's had a complete and full job. Uh, job. transference. You do it. You quit your job? 
Well, I didn't really quit, but I got fired, but it was the same thing. Linda, you were right. No more responsible David. I'm free. I was responsibly blind, honey. I was a dead man. Well, I would have never used that word if I knew you were going to take it so literally. I didn't mean anything by it. I'm giving you credit for saving my life. But it was just a word. Linda, they were jacking me off. Shh. They were jacking me off. I was on the road to nowhere. Do you know the road? No. It's a nowhere road. It goes nowhere. You're on it. You don't know it? It's a nowhere road. It just goes around in a circle. It's the carrot on the stick and the watch when you're 70. Who was made senior vice president? I don't care anymore about school senior vice president and vice president. I'm sick of being programmed like a stupid robot. Phil Shabana. Why? Phil Shabana. I don't know why the underqualified son of a bitch. <laughs> That's another Brooksian moment, right? He's so above it. He's so elevated. He's seen the light. Phil Chabano. He's consumed with, with jealous rage. It's so, so good. And here, of course, we have to introduce Julie Haggerty. Genius, genius, genius actor. And a absolutely brilliant performer. One of the great uh, comic actors in American film. One of the smartest actors you know, we talked about her when we did Airplane, but her work here is so good. This should have been nominated for an Academy Award performance. She is so good in this film. And her essential decency, again, is a quality she kind of shares with, with Brooks, although hers is more fundamental to her persona whereas Brooks's is kind of a necessary counterpoint to some other qualities which might get irritating. Um, but her listening is phenomenal. She's always listening as a, you've heard the, there's a voice of reason. She's the listener of reason. When you watch this film again, watch when she's listening to all these crazy things that the Brooks character comes up with. She's indulging him, but she also sees the bigger picture uh, before he does. And that's one of her great qualities as an actor. The next scene is this great scene where they have a going away party. And I always thought that in this scene, his boss, who he's just fighting with before, the Michael Green character, the boss should be at the party. I think it would be a better ending scene that way before, I mean, an ending of his career portion scene. Like the idea that you, know, you can have these kind of crazy indulgent fights and be fired even or quit. And yet when it comes time for their going away party, you know, these things are forgiven. Like there's a lifetime spent in the office. Phil Shibano should be there too. Like we should have met the Phil Shibano character. Would have been funny to see who Phil Shibano was. Maybe it would have been an opportunity to have uh, Super Dave Osborne come in and, and do a cameo much as he does to hilarious, brilliant effect in modern romance. But that's not what they, they chose to do. Now, probably the most famous cue in the film comes from the use of this song uh, in the road montage of the couple Erica. finally Look out. hitting road in their Winnebago. <laughs> pull out from a Winnebago wheel to the Winnebago on the highways. 
One of the great visual jokes in American comedy. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. This is what the dream of the 60s has turned into. We're not renegades on motorcycles carrying illicit drugs into an unknown future. We're yuppies in a $50,000 motorhome cruising the 405 on our way out of Los Angeles. Now, what's so great about that scene and the iconic moment where the motorcyclist, in response to Aaron beeping the horn and giving him a thumbs up as if to say, you and I are brothers of the road. We are on the same journey, man. The guy gives him the finger. (laughs) But the genius of that scene is not that part particularly. It's the little visual reaction that Brooks allows himself as, as an actor that Brooks, the director, allows Brooks the actor because he gives this little kind of shrugging scene, which is so great. And this is also the part where the RV itself becomes, as Brooks says in one of the featurettes, that the RV becomes a character in the film. And it's absolutely true. It's the third part of this triumvirate here. The brilliance of the whole scene is that right here, we are not even out of L.A., this one moment of open road bliss experienced by the Brooks character is already ruined before they even get out of their own town. The whole thing unravels with the finger, the middle finger. And it's such a perfect setup to this middle third of the film, which is all about what happens to them on the road. And what I like about this section is It's brilliant that the Julie Haggerty character who kind of doesn't really want to necessarily go quite as uh, hardcore in terms of camping out under the stars, roughing it, getting married at a Las Vegas wedding chapel and hitting the open road. Like she doesn't really want to do that stuff. And she kind of manipulates Aaron into uh, staying overnight at a big hotel and, um, you know, splurging on dinner and all of these things that are sort of the trappings of their life that they don't, why do I keep calling him Aaron? His name's David. I think Aaron is the character in Modern Romance. Apologies, Aaron and David. David and Linda are Albert Brooks and Julie Haggerty. So Linda doesn't really want to give up the creature comforts. David doesn't either, but she's more honest about it. Let's put it that way. That's one of the great things about the Julie Haggerty thing. And another great portion of uh, the film is how it uses in places non-actors. For example, uh, this scene where she has talked him into booking the biggest bridal suite on the strip and they're going to check into the hotel and they pull up in their motorhome. These great shots, these beautifully photographed shots, by the way of uh, the Vegas Strip and the motorhome driving through. And the production actually went on the road in two motorhomes. That's how they filmed this movie. It was a relatively small crew, very low-budget film. They were all cooped up in these motorhomes for God knows however many days they were shooting the film. But this guy who plays the... How are you? Good evening. 
Um, Hotel clerk. and I have dropped out of society, and we were going to spend the night... This is the way I do it. And we were going to spend the night kind of camping out and sleeping out under the stars, but we're getting remarried tomorrow, and we want something real special, so the best bridal suite. Do you have a reservation? Well, I just dropped out of society. I kind of live moment to moment. I really don't do reservation things anymore. Well, we do, and uh, I'm sorry, but the bridal suite is occupied. <laughs> Brooks is doing here what, what I've referred to uh, in honor of my friend Ben Fusner as Fusner splaining. He is giving someone in this scene far more information than the person cares to ever accept in the belief that a full, more fully rounded appreciation of the circumstances will somehow tilt things to his favor. I love the way that I love the way the actor kind of live moment to moment. I really don't do reservation things do. We do, and I'm sorry, but the bridal suite is occupied. Well, we tried. He's ready to give up. Well, we tried. We just said we I'll tell you what. I've worked with computers in college, and I know that sometimes they're complicated machines. Why don't you just run it through one more time? Who knows? I think I know what you mean. I'll just check. Bert, Nope. It's occupied. No. Give some more money. I just gave him 50 bucks. I'm gonna give him all my money. He doesn't give me the things. Bridal suite, okay? Just give him some more money. Come on, just give him some more okay? Listen, I'm I'm not good at this. I don't get good seats at games, and I've never gotten a ringside table, and it's just something I really don't know how to do. So, just to save time, how much do you want? $100. And then, of course, they get up to the junior bridal suite. And another great use of an actor here is this uh, bellman who doesn't know. I mean, this is a mistake. Uh, doesn't know anything. For a suite. So is this open up? Uh, junior bridal suite. What? Junior bridal suite. Gee, I gave a guy 100 bucks to get the best bridal suite in the house. Is there a senior bridal suite? I don't know. But I gave him $100. I don't know. Can I get into this room? Is there a big living room that goes here? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. This is so good. There's no one who's been as good as this, as good at this as Albert Brooks. And uh, one of the great one of the great lines in the movie is uh, once they once they accept their fate. And there are these two twin heart-shaped beds. What do you think? I think if Liberace had children, this would be their room. I'm going to check out the bathroom. <laughs> I think if Liberace had children, this would be their room. It's such a great example of the type of scene or line that Brooks and or Monica Johnson write. These punctuation jokes, which perfectly nail the thing that they're talking about. There's just so many examples in this film where this last line like this is, is so good. And talking again about Julie Haggerty, as we get into this uh, Las Vegas scene, of course, her most famous scenes as an actor um, are in these moments where she... <laughs> 
where she loses the nest egg. And, you know, it's a, it's just a tour de force scene of her in the casino at the gambling tables. And you haven't seen her this way. She's been the voice of reason. As he said, she's been the listener of reason. And when he finds her, she is in such a completely different state. Come on, back to me, 22. Come on, back to me. Come on, back. Come on, 22, 22, 22. Come on, back. Come on, back. 22. Come on, come on, come on. 22, 22. What are you doing? 22. What's the matter with you? Not now, not now. Just go away. Not now. Come on, 22. Root for me. We're going for 22. 22, 22, 12. 22. How much did you Shit. lose? God. Shit. How much was that? Shit. How much money is that? One more time, 22. Why are you betting 22? Now, what's fascinating about this scene now, of course, you know the story now because everyone has seen the film. You know that she's lost the entirety of the nest egg. But what's great about the scene is the confidence to write it and play it without that information being immediately revealed. You know, you don't know how bad it is. I mean, you can judge, you can guess when you just watch the scene cold. But it doesn't lead with... I lost, you know, she's lost $145,000, which is essentially the truth here. And this is also the introduction of Gary Marshall, one of the greatest cameos in movies. This reminds me of another episode I want to do, Great Cameos. This is up there with Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of quality, memorable on-screen cameos. And just look at how this scene plays out here. We got it to Gary Marshall's accent is so great. Come on back. She's been here all night. She's not on a lucky streak. I think you should talk to her. How much has she lost? Talk to her. How much? Talk. Come on. Just the use of his Brooklyn persona is so great. Of course, he's Penny Marshall's brother, if you don't know Gary Marshall. He's a producer, a writer, a television icon of the of the era. And he wasn't an actor. And I don't believe he had ever acted in anything before this. And I believe the way that it came about was that Monica Johnson was friends with Penny Marshall. And when they were casting the film, she said, you know, you should use Gary for this part. And that's how he ended up in the film. Come on. The man says you're not in a lucky spot. What man? Right over here, he says you've lost. I was down earlier, but come on. And you're up now? No, I'm still down, but I'm going to hit now. How down are you? David, you're going to bring me bad luck now. Stop it. Come on. Well, he says you've already got bad luck. 22, 22. Come on. 22. 22. No! All right, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, all right, I'm up. $35. We're up, we're still down. How down? Down, 22, down, 22. How down is she? Down. It's just a great comic writing, right? Uh, I think you should talk to her. Talk, talk. How down? Down. I mean, it's just a tour de force of comic writing and performing. The way that Brooks immediately changes direction and is enthusiastic and catches the gambling bug with her is so brilliantly portrayed. How down are you? I'm down. How much down. have you lost? Everything. What does that mean? Everything. No, what do you mean? Everything on 22. Well, here comes my absolute favorite mini cameo. Where did you get that number? What is 22? Come on back. Stop betting Come 22. On Double zero. Shit. You lost. It's gone. 22. What do you mean 22. Two, you have two, no more money. Two, Stop it. 22, you really like 22, huh? Stop it. Come here. <laughs> she really liked 22, huh? That is the great Byron Tong. I don't know the story of how he ended up in the film. He has no other credits. 
He was probably just a Las Vegas gambler that they happened to encounter. He's got the most incredible look, and he's so good in the movie. <laughs> it's just this quick shot of him, three-piece suit, stack of chips, tinted glasses, smoking a cigarette. She really liked 22, huh? I posted this on the Instagram page, and only, I think, six people got it. So to you six people, you are the geniuses of the full cast and crew Instagram page. Thank you for understanding. Now, getting to Gary Marshall, who is one of just several incredible uses of non-actor actors. Uh, this is probably the scene the film is most known for, is the, is the Desert Inn has heart scene. And it is indeed, you know, a tour de force of a cameo and of Thank you for seeing me. a brilliantly uh, a lot about you. written scene. What do you scene. mean? Who are you talking to? I meant nice things. You have a good reputation. You run a great casino. Oh, thank you. Is your wife feeling better? Much better. <clears throat> I'm going to present you with an idea. And before I do, I just want to fill you in on a little bit of my credentials. I was... Uh, By the way, keep in mind, this whole bullshit monologue about his credentials is delivered while he's in his bathrobe. <laughs> Because he's had, he woke up at six in the morning and he realized his wife was missing. He went to casino to find her. And again, the comedic listening skills here of Gary Marshall are so brilliantly deployed. Really just, we're going to roll. You know, the awareness of where the line of bullshit is that he's being fed. Easy what? Easy Rider, the, the film. Oh, I didn't see that film. Great movie. You got to see it. It's historic. Anyway. My wife and I, we liquidated, we put everything into this nest egg, and we were going to spend the rest of our lives roaming the country, finding ourselves just, just being. We lost our nest egg here. I realize you lost a lot of money. Your room and your food comped free. Oh, oh no, 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 no. I didn't mean that. That's not and, you know, you know this scene. You've seen it a million times. And... The the brilliant use of Gary Marshall here is just one of the great strengths of the film. And I think it took a lot of takes, and, and Brooks acknowledges this in his conversation with Robert Wyde, that he's like, I think Gary was a little bit like, what did I get myself into here? Because it's apparent, I think, that Brooks as a director just is a perfectionist and insists on doing it as many times as is required to get it right. And I'm sure that that can be, uh, you know, feeling, I, I'm sure that can be a little tough, especially as a non-actor. But he tells the anecdote that when Gary saw the film, he was kind of like, hey, I'm pretty funny in this. And you can tell the way that Brooks tells the anecdote that Brooks is like, he's laughing in a way with Robert Wyde that says, yes, you are funny in it. And you should probably thank me for that uh, because I'm sure that it took what it took uh, to get what it was going there. Now, speaking of Easy Rider, there's a bunch of funny kind of moments where Easy Rider comes up, and that's that's appropriate because that's the inspiration for the film. The inspiration, the kernel, as Brooks tells it, was Easy Rider. You're just nervous about tomorrow. Um, this is a little bit of him talking about that inspiration with Robert Wyde. 
starts with that little clip of them at the beginning of the film that I talked about. I guess we should bring this up to Lost in America. What was the initial seed that led to this idea? The initial seed was to add some realism to the whole idea of Easy Rider. I mean, that was such a big influence in the 60s and the idea of dropping out. But as time went on, that idea didn't work exactly the way it was supposed to. And I thought it would be funny to have a story about dropping out and dropping in two weeks later. Now that's the perfect summation. A lot of people criticize the film for what to them feels like a tacked on ending because you know you go through this whole process with these characters this exile in this very sleepy tiny trailer park in Arizona only and i put that in quotes for these people to feel that the film sort of abruptly returns to new york and they get out of the camper on madison avenue and he runs into the guy he yelled at in his boss's office and he he resumes his advertising career and they dropped back in but Brooks says that that's, he always had that scene. That's where, in his mind, the movie ended. He had that first, and he wrote backwards from there. So it's kind of interesting. But anyway, the Easy Rider thing runs through the film, through the use of uh, the song, as we had already discussed. There's the great scene with uh, the motorcycle cop that pulls him over. <laughs> and uh, the... I wanted to see the, oh, where's the part of the, the, I can't, I can't find the part with the motorcycle cop, but <clears throat> I think the motorcycle cop, you have to correct me if, if I'm wrong about this. Does the cop get this thing wrong? Uh, they get pulled over in, you know, by this very by the book cop. I hate the walk up the worst. I hate it. See your license and registration, please. What was I doing? 83 miles an hour. 83? Gee, my speedometer. Can I see your license and registration, Just please? Establishing the humorlessness of the police officer. And then as the so scene goes on, of course, Brooks is, bob is bungling it because he can't get out of. I swear, the dealer said that I would get a ticket for no reason. Hey, buddy. He's irritating the cop. Can I ask you how much this will cost? Here comes Julie Haggerty to save the day. $140, $150. Oh, we can't pay that. That's too high. That's too much money. We don't have it. This isn't a swap meet. Did you see Easy Rider? I tried this. It doesn't work. What? You know, the movie Easy Rider? I can't believe you asked me that. It's my favorite movie of all time. I love that movie. I started riding a motorcycle because of that movie. Why'd you ask me that? Well, my, my husband, he sort of based his whole life on that movie. Well, not my whole life, but the last couple of weeks, yes. How are you? Hello. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Remember the ending when they got blown away? Great ending. It made my day. <laughs> now, is that like a super meta reference to Dirty Harry? Um, go ahead, punk, make my day. I isn't there, isn't, isn't it? One of the Dirty Harry movies where there's a there's a, a a chips officer, a motorcycle driving chips officer, is the is the serial killer that Dirty Harry is is searching for. 
uh, is this like a meta jum- jumbled, jumbled up reference between Easy Rider and that, or is it that the cop is bungling Whoa. the oh. reference? <laughs> Fantastic. Remember the ending when they got blown away? Great ending. It made my day. <laughs> Remember the scene with Jack Nicholson with a football helmet? Yes, you know, Nicholson wasn't supposed to get that part. Really? No, no, it was supposed to be somebody else. He lucked into it. Oh, remember that scene in the commune? With the mimes? Yeah. Great scene. You know, since we all have this in common, <laughs> couldn't you make it? Great scene. Go- this actor is so good. <laughs> oh, my God. And then, so then the other funny part of the, um, the other funny part of the Easy Rider uh, thing is, when they're fighting on the Hoover Dam, <laughs> Brooks's line here about uh, how the Easy Rider characters also had a nest egg is genius. Nothing. They had no nest egg. Bullshit. They had a giant nest egg. They had all this cocaine. That's not true. It is true. Linda, they sold cocaine. <laughs> okay, Just, wait a second. That's like one of my favorite lines in the movie. Linda, they sold cocaine. <laughs> Oh my God. It's so hilarious. There's also a little part here in the Hoover Dam section, which I wonder, is this kind of like a, um, is it like a, is it a Hitchcock reference? I don't know Hitchcock films well enough to know if this is a a dead on reference, but there's this genius use of the score here. This is when she's left with the ex-con in one car and then the Winnebago's being driven after them, but it's this like, Lost a woman. Seesaw of roads. A whole woman. And this is, again, the score is fantastic. As is the cinematography. Then I wanted to play you just one of the great laughs in film history here is uh, the Julie Haggerty laugh after she's recounting this you know, the guy that picks her up uh, when she's, when they're in this fight and hitchhiking. Uh, This is, this is the greatest example, I think, of her comedic genius. And, and listen to the genuineness of her laugh at the end of this story. It's got her, her guilelessness as a character is, is indicated in this little story that she tells about the near-do-well ex-con that she spent, you know, a couple hours with before uh, Brooks confronts him at the diner. Uh, is this off? Yeah. Are you okay? I'm all right. Next time, get a ride with a small woman, will you? You know, everything's really going to be okay. Weren't you scared? What were you talking about? Oh, God. I, he was telling me his whole life story. He was divorced. He got kicked out of the army. He couldn't keep the job. Do you know he escaped from prison? What did he do? Well, to hear him tell it, he said that those two guys were dead when he got there. Oh, God. Well, I showed him, huh? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Pity the man who tries to catch up with me. <laughs> That's not funny. You'll it's... laugh soon. No, I won't laugh soon. <laughs> you will. An adult's not supposed to get a bloody nose. That's it's so good. I, I'm just so in awe of her as an actor. I think she's fantastic. Um, another little shout out to 
my and every teenage boy's childhood occurs in the film here. Once they arrive at their little trailer park in Arizona, uh, which again, the great journey ends when he says, my legs are asleep, let's stay here. When they wake up the next morning, uh, there's a great little shout out to a little show that you teen boys out there might remember. 20 minute workout. Now, this little throwaway here, I should I should do an episode about 20-minute workout because once I looked up to it, it's 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 hilarious. So what this show was, uh, it was apparently only made for one year from 1983 to 1984. This was an aerobics television show, and it was on television for some reason all the time. It was in syndication. And it was notable because it was filmed in a very different style. It had three leotard-clad women in a rotating platform in an all-white room, and they would always have these differently colored and coordinated leotard outfits. And as you could hear, that kind of porn music over these workouts. And the genius of the show is, of course, like, I suppose there were some housewives whom the show was pointed at supposedly who were actually doing these workouts with commercial breaks. I don't really know how that works, but I mean, to me, it always basically seemed to be pointed towards teenage boys. And once I looked into it, indeed it was created by a, uh, how do they call him? Let's, let's use the Wikipedia term. Uh, It was created by a gentleman called Ron Harris, who was an American erotic photographer and television director. Now, Ron has a few credits that would lend you to understand how he could arrive at uh, this concept. Perhaps it's a really genius use of a pool of actors and a existing pool of music, which he could use... uh, over and over again. He sounds like a character. He had four different marriages. Um, and later in his life, he introduced a variety of adult-oriented websites of varying degrees of sleaziness and disbelief. Let's just put it at that. But there's a nice little shout-out here to 20-Minute Workout, which I think... Again, this is like the kind of thing that you can just feel Albert Brooks noting this um, this weird thing that pop culture had fed up and finding a way to fit it in. Interestingly, also, you know, the scene where he's shouting at her um, in the Hoover Dam area and... Uh, later on inside the uh, the Winnebago. These scenes scared the director, Nicholas Winding Rain, so much that he, uh, he cast Brooks in, uh, what's the movie called? Drive, Ryan Gosling film, because he was so scared <laughs> by... Uh, the, the argument and the, the vociferousness. I can't believe it, that's it! I have been too controlled. 
What do you mean? You took our nest egg and you broke it all over the desert inn. Let's have lunch now. You filled up the casino with yoke, the fair thing. I was sleeping. Get it out. Fine. Oh, stop it. Don't treat me like I'm an insane patient, Just please. Just go back inside. You can yell at me. I don't want you to yell out here, okay? Out here? Out where? We live here. Get used to the cement, honey. This is our house forever. This is it. We found ourselves. So, uh, if you haven't seen Drive, it's a brilliant film. Great, great neo-noir film. Ryan Gosling and Carey Mulligan. And Brooks plays the most vicious, evil gangster. And it's a fantastic performance. But he did not get an Academy Award nomination. And of course, when he did post on Twitter, which it seems like he's unfortunately stopped doing amidst all of the Elon Musk era-ness of things these days on X or Twitter, whatever it's called, he aped uh, the brilliant uh, Academy Award speech uh, for Norma Ray, where he responded humorously on Twitter after not getting an Academy Award nomination. You don't like me. You really don't like me. So that was pretty funny. So anyway, that's how he got cast in the movie, is that Nicholas Winding Rain remembers seeing this comedy as a child, but being so terrified by the screaming that he knew that Brooks would be perfect at, uh, at playing the gangster. Another brilliant use of a non-actor is the appearance of Brooks's own manager in the film, and I believe one of the producers of the, of the film. He's a guy named Herb Nanus, who's another character who once I looked up, I was kind of uh, taken with um, just because of the, you can read between the lines in the Wikipedia thing. I think he's another guy who had like multiple marriages. Some, his nose looks, something happened to his nose. I'm not sure if the 80s happened to his nose or what. Um, but he appears in the film in this great little cameo as the driver of the very Mercedes with the color combination that David had wanted. That's where the Mercedes appears like a vision during his crossing guard year. And Herb Nanus is so perfectly cast as the guy driving this car. Listen hey, to this Where am I? Safford, Arizona. Oh my God. How do I get to LA? You know where 70 is? No. You gotta go about three and a half blocks. See that stop sign? Yeah. All right, you turn left. You go all the way down till you hit 70. You get on 70, that turns into 60. That takes you to Phoenix. Great, let me understand that. The stop sign, turn left to 60. What are you smelling? What are you smelling around here? What are you sniffing? What are you doing? What is this interior, leather? Yeah, of course it's leather. It comes with the car, I think it is. It's nice. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. Um, listen, let me understand. I go down to the stop sign, <laughs> turn left, go to 70, 70 will take me to 60, 60 will take me to Phoenix. Can is you imagine cool? having this guy as your manager in the early 80s? The like. <laughs> I mean, I would love to get phone calls from Herb Nanus and that accent, right? Like, it's just so good. This crossing guard scene is also one of the most hilarious to me and the perfectly cast kids and the undercurrent of naked aggression, which, well, in their point, it's not even an undercurrent. It's just an obvious font of aggression as they are pissed off that he won't let them cross. <laughs> so 
This the body language in the folding chair is brilliant. And these kids are just so brilliant. Don't call me retardo. Come on, retardo. Come on, right now, sucker. Let's go now, across the street. Now, we ain't got time to wait. We're already late, retarded. Come on, retardo. Come on, Gonna get hurt, right? You just cross the street. Oh, just go. All right, get off your bike and walk it across the street. Walk your bike. I'm warning you, walk your bike. Do you come from the dump? Children, I take no responsibility for your safety. Die for us and save us the bobble. Dumb brillo pad, fathead. Alrighty. Alrighty. <laughs> Dumb brillo pad, fathead. Oh my god. How good is it? The answer is very, very good. Now, the there's a funny story too of um <laughs> this kid. Oh my god. Probably my favorite non-professional cameo actor in the film is the kid who plays her manager at the Der Wiener Schnitzel. After I left, I got it. He just didn't know how to get hold of me. That's the job you were waiting for? Yeah. You sell hot dogs? Yeah. Wow. This kid. This place is great. Hey, Linda, when you flush the toilet, where does it go? Who is this? Oh, this is Skip, the manager, and this is David, my husband. How you doing? You're the manager? You slept on it? What? He slept on it? How you doing? Call me Skippy. Skippy. Hey, your wife told me what you guys did. That dropout thing? Oh, yeah? Well, hey, I really admire you. Thanks. When I get old, I might do it. Hey, did she tell you what happened today? He's tired. I'll tell him later, Skippy. No, no, no. I want to hear Skip talk. Hey, thanks. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had this frying machine. Uh-huh. Okay, we, we didn't really know how to use it, but funny thing is, we, we'd use it anyway. We put the oil in and everything, read the instructions, okay. threw the fries in, blah, blah, blah. Boom. They were done. Serve them. No problem. Well, she comes up to me and says, Skip, these fries are frozen. What? So we look at them in the light, and you could see that inside the fries, they were a little bit frozen, maybe a little bit of ice or whatnot. You were eating them frozen, huh? What do you want me to do? I mean, <laughs> what do you want me to do? The feathered hair, the wispy mustache, it's so good. Brooks talks in the thing about how hard it was to get this kid to do this scene because he's not an actor. So you're talking about comic timing. I mean, it's got to be right. In the exasperation that I think everyone is feeling here, it kind of comes through. Um, when Brooks isn't looking at Skippy in the beginning of the scene, he waves Skippy waves and he's like, hello, like you will pay attention to me, sir. It's great. And as he goes through this little story, uh, he it's again, it's just the confidence to put someone who, uh, who isn't a professional actor in these kind of pivotal scenes. And <laughs> oh my God, I just think it's so, so well done. And you know who else really, really loved it? Uh, was Siskel and Ebert, of course, who, who Brooks credits for really making the film a success. 
with theater goers. Right. Next is the movie. Another movie about a guy who gets in a car and drives out into the night. Albert Brooks in Lost in America. Now, what's great about this Siskel and Ebert review, particularly, is I don't think I've ever seen them more gleefully, laughingly enjoying themselves just recounting scenes from the movie. It's like two guys who both loved a movie and they're just doing the same thing the cop and uh, David were doing at the side of the road. Remember that scene? Remember that scene? Like Gene and and Roger do that in this yeah, review. Yeah, who want to get away from it all. The movie starts with Brooks as a $100,000 a year advertising man and his wife. And they're just laughing. Like the he, he can't stop laughing as he's doing this little review. And use a nest egg of $190,000 to buy a luxury motorhome and then they're going to spend the rest of their lives attempt to convince the casino owner to give him back their money. Now, Brooks explains, I'm an ad man. This is not just an amateur opinion. I get paid for my opinions, and it would be great for the casino's image for you to return the money. He says, remember Santa Claus and Miracle on 34th right, right, Street? Right. And the guy from the casino says, yeah, but that was Santa Claus. That's <laughs> <Right>. not us. <laughs> right. We don't give presents. <laughs> the casino owner explains, Brooks is crazy. If they gave everybody's money back, they'd be out of business. And there's another great scene where an unemployment counselor tries to understand why Brooks walked out on a $100,000 a year job in order to change his life. He said, I mean, they're just, this is the review. There's, there's no actual like reviewing. It's just Gene and Roger talking about how great the scenes are. I did want to play this, this great scene from the employment office because this is just another perfectly calibrated two-hander, uh, Dead pl played so well. There's one before it in the um, in the grocery store where uh, he's asking about high paying jobs. But this guy is so great as the deadpan employment counselor in the tiniest town you could possibly be looking for a job in. So, Mr. Howard, what can we do for you? I need work. All right. Uh, what has been your previous work experience? For the last eight years, I was with Ross and McMahon. The last uh, four of those, I was creative director. You're familiar with them? No. Uh, advertising agency, one of the biggest in the world. And um, before that, I worked in and out of advertising, nothing to speak of, for about five years. Uh, worked in a catering truck for seven months in Pittsburgh and made food. Made uh, food. Oh, oh! I worked at a, at a crisis center for uh, three months. Um, not dealing. Th this guy's name is Art Frankel, who's answering the phone deadpan the cutaways phone. do more than any number then, of uh, brilliantly school, written lines could possibly do. We don't have to go back that far. Right. More recent. Things. All right. Well, advertising. You know, eight years. Ross and McMahon. What was your uh, previous salary? Uh, $80,000 was the base. So and, it's uh, like pretty generally. straightforward <laughs> until he starts <laughs> laughing. What's so funny? Nothing. That's very good. What brings you around these parts? Trying to double up on that income? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've come here to live. I'm trying to change my life. You couldn't change your life on $100,000? Um, what have you got for me? Any jobs? I don't have anything right now. What I do have, you wouldn't be interested in. Well, why don't you check back with me in a month? Well, you don't know that. I'm, I'm very interested. What do you have? Coming from your position and your salary, you wouldn't be interested in it. Well, you don't know me. I might love it. What is it? A crossing guard. <laughs> what is that? 
and then there's maybe in the executive file or this maybe last you have a, tag part. A, a white collar box or something. What sort of box would that be? Just a, a box of higher paying jobs. Oh, I know. You mean the $100,000 box. <laughs> Just the, the humiliation is so great. I mean, continually piled upon poor David. So there's a great little final story. You know, the movie ends with Sinatra's uh, New York, New York. And allegedly, let's go with it because it's a good story. Um, I'll probably, the episode will probably be taken down from that one second of Sinatra that I put in there. Um, so apparently Sinatra had never allowed his songs to be used in a film up to this point. I don't know if that's true. This is a 1985 film. And Albert Brooks knew Sinatra's lawyer. And the lawyer said, what I think you should do is write Frank a letter. So Brooks wrote Sinatra a letter, which I looked for online. It would be incredible. I wish he had kept a copy and that we could see this letter. But he wrote Sinatra this letter, which he talks about in the interview with Bob Wyde on the Criterion. And he's transparent about the fact that he used everything that he could. My father died when I was young. He was a big fan of yours. He was a radio star. You probably knew him. I'm making this film, et cetera, et cetera. He laid it on thick in the letter. And some weeks later, he got a call back from the lawyer who said, Frank says you're okay. And that's how he was able to use New York, New York as the closing for uh, Lost in America, a brilliant, brilliant and priceless slice of Americana, um, which I highly recommend that people see. Oh, and I wanted to just talk a little bit about Monica Johnson because I, I was so taken with um, just what I could read about her life and her involvement in so many important American filmed comedy and television programs and moments. She passed away at age 64 in, I want to say, 2010. Um, she wrote five of these films with Albert Brooks. She then went on to work with Gary Shandling and a bunch of other notable TV shows and films. Uh, her brother was a very famous comedy writer from the 50s and the 60s named Jerry Belson. And I guess the, the, the example, the best example of her in a nutshell without de devoting a whole half hour to talking about her, which I could easily do, is that Brooks tells this anecdote of a line that appears in um, Modern Romance which is one of my favorite scenes. It's the scene where he, where, where Albert Brooks' character, who I presume is named Aaron because I kept messing it up, where he goes to change his life and he's, he, be, he decides that jogging is going to be a part of his life. And he has this fantastic scene with his brother, Super Dave Osborne. And in the scene, there is a litany of things that he's being upsold in a brilliant, hilarious way. And, and among them is a wrist wallet, which is hilariously presented uh, as a necessity. Uh, 
And this whole scene is so genius. I'm just going to play it because it's only a couple minutes. It's such a genius scene between two brothers. Think of that. And two comedy geniuses. How you doing? Fine, how are you? How do I look? You look fine. Get this. I'm in great shape. How about yourself? I'm all right. Okay, you're a new runner, huh? Why, I look out of shape? No, it's just that you're looking at cheap stuff. This is not serious running stuff. Why? Well, they put everything in one box and then they knock the price down. You buy it, you wind up bringing it back. Oh, all right, well, I am serious. Here's the thing, I just broke up with somebody and I'm trying to start a new life and I feel that running should be a major part of it. You want happiness? Get away from the box. Come over here. Just the, the, the subtle, mean-spirited insults of the salesman, the reversal of the usual norm. What size shoe do you wear? 11D. And I love the transparency of this lie. You're a lucky man. I got one left. There's like a whole wall of Nike shoes behind got. him. He's got one left. $50. This whole box is 70 I mean, isn't this a lot for just shoes? Those shoes are made out of old tires. Is that the way you want to start your new life? No. All right, I'll take these. Good choice. I'll try them on. No, you don't have to. That's the beauty of them. They're guaranteed to fit if they don't bring them back. So the line that Brooks cites as an example of the genius of Monica Johnson is coming up here when he's telling him that he needs to buy a wrist wallet. enough salt tablets. We got ankle weights, headband, sweatband, supporters. you have any supporters? Okay, I'll get you three of those and a wrist wallet. What's a wrist wallet? Where are you going to carry your money? You going to run broke? No, but there's a zipper in this thing here. It's better to keep it on your wrist. So are you going to run broke? That's a Monica Johnson line that Brooks cites as so representative of her specific type of comedic genius, which is always very hard to describe someone's type of comedic genius. But when you read the comments on a Deadline article about her passing, you can start to get a um, you can start to get a glimpse of how special this person was. Maybe I don't want to say tortured, but you do kind of get this hint that these you know that she was a comedy person of the sort that is so true to the comedy that they don't necessarily fit into everyday life. And there are great little anecdotes um, from people that worked with her on things like It's Gary Shandling's show, um, notable people, um, you know, commenting on her. And it's just great. It's got great little sort of remembrances of her. And... Brooks says that when he would write films like this, his process was talking it out. He he continually, um, you know, he he would talk out in the entirety of scenes and, you know, she would write down what he was saying and she would also kind of interject these lines and improve upon these lines. And, and you can tell when he's talking about her how genuinely appreciative and kind of sad he is that she's no longer with us. And I think that her contribution to comedy and to these things is really important. It's one that it would be really worthy of redress. I think she deserves her own documentary. If her daughter Heidi ends up listening to this, get in touch with me. I think this is a wrong that we can right.
um, because she's the type of person, I always tell this to people who have prospective documentary subjects or ideas rather, I always say, if you hit on just the right subject, and this is one of those subjects, and you approach people who have huge names or presences in the comedy infrastructure that knew her or worked with her, you're going to get a yes. doesn't matter what you have or haven't done before. They're going to probably make sure that you pass muster in terms of like, are you going to do justice to this person if I make time to speak to you about her? But you're going to get these people to speak on the record, on camera, to remember this unique, quirky, brilliantly funny person who contributed so much to comedy uh, during her lifetime and comes from comedy royalty, kind of like Brooks does. And pay attention to her contributions. Develop an ear for that Monica Johnson line. What, are you going to run broke? That's such a brilliant line. Brooks says in the the making of stuff, he's like, that, that's what just one of the greatest lines anyone ever wrote. And he's right. And this film is chock-a-block with them. I use that phrase again. So take a look at Lost in America. Take a look again at Modern Romance. You will not be disappointed. They're brilliant. They're worthy of your time and your attention. And I aspire to be worthy of your time and attention. Thank you again for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast.